you were here last week, you know we'll be back this week in Luke chapter 14. And so if you have a Bible with you, I hope you do, or a device or something that would have a good Bible content on it, then please find your way over to Luke chapter 14. We'll pick up with the same verses that we covered last week as we look at the second message in a, in a series of, of couple of messages, the second part really of a, a message that I've titled Free Grace and Costly Discipleship. Free Grace, Costly Discipleship, because that seems to be what Jesus is so richly proclaiming to us here as we come into Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. And we saw a bit of that last week, but we're really going to expand on that today just to kind of collect our thoughts. So if you know me well, then you'll know that I really enjoy finding a good deal, all right? I can't, I can't order. I mean, I mean, it's almost become a little bit of an obsession, I must admit. I can't order an, an item online anymore without kind of cross-comparing three or four different websites or maybe even more just to ensure that I'm getting the best price on the item that I'm buying. And even when I go into the store these days, Right, I mean, if I find an item that I want to buy, I first got to take out my cell phone, and then I've got to go punch in the URL of a couple of different stores just to make sure I'm finding a good deal, because that's just the sort of guy I am. I really enjoy finding a good deal. Maybe it's smart shopping, or maybe it's a matter of being cheap. We may have differences of opinion on that. Some of you might even say that a guy like me should join a support group, maybe Cheapskates Anonymous. If there were such a group, I'd say, you know, I'm not a cheapskate, but if they have free coffee, I might give it a try. Anyhow, several years ago, I came across what I thought was just going to be a stellar deal, okay? It was an extra, extra large, seven-foot, comfort suede beanbag sofa. Advance that slide one, and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about here. 25% off, folks. 25% off. And you see, Amy and I had this lofted area kind of over our living room where I just knew that we could put that beanbag sofa. I mean, it was an empty area. It was an area that we rarely ever used. And so I said, I know what we can do. We can order this fine piece of furniture, and then we'll just have so much fun lounging around, enjoying our upstairs that we do not currently use. Now, Amy seemed a little bit skeptical at this plan, but she agreed to go ahead with the purchase. Well, that seven-foot beanbag sofa showed up a few days later in about a two-foot square box, okay? And I took it out, and it took a couple of hours for that thing to expand. But when it was done, I want to tell you that it did not look like a sofa at all. It looked like a seven-foot mountain of foam rubber chips loosely sewn together inside of a brown suede sack because that's truly what it was. So you see, this is what our beanbag sofa turned out looking like. Now, when I had thought about having a beanbag sofa, I thought about something that we could sit on or that we could nap on, that would, that would hold us up, that would keep its shape and make for a comfortable piece of furniture. Well, I can say that after about 10 minutes of punching on this thing, I could get into a decent sofa sort of shape, okay? 
But as soon as somebody would try to move around on it, that thing would lose its shape. And we could barely get off of it once we sat down because every time you tried to push yourself up, your, your hand would just go through the beans and the bean bag all the way down to the floor. I so wanted this thing to work, though. I mean, I invested my hard-earned money in spite of my wife's skeptical brow. So I made every effort to make this thing work. I even tried camping on it a couple of nights with the kids. And I just want to say those were some of the worst nights of sleep that I have ever gotten in my life. You see, I couldn't roll over without rolling off of the thing. And every inch of my body was at a different elevation. And so it was not a good experience. And eventually, I came to realize that what had seemed to be such a good deal wasn't worth the price that I had paid for it. So we gave our beanbag sofa away. I could not in good conscience charge anyone for that thing. And we have not shed a tear since that moment. But truth be told, all of us have probably experienced the reality that for some investments, the bitterness of poor quality lingers long after the sweetness of a cheap price has been forgotten. We've all bought into things which costed little and ended up delivering even less. But we've also known the experience that some things are very costly And yet they prove themselves to be worth the cost. And God's kingdom is like that. God's kingdom is the costly thing that shows itself to be so worthy of the cost. That's what Jesus conveys over in Matthew's gospel in what we call the the parable of the pearl of great price. As we read in Matthew 13, 45 and 46, that's where Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding the one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, Jesus is teaching us that, yes, as we just saw last week, coming after Jesus and following him to the kingdom of God costs heavily. It costs us everything. Discipleship is costly. And the costs are not hidden in the fine print by Jesus. He lays them all out for us, as we saw so clearly last week. But following Jesus is well worth the cost. And in this nation of economic fortune in which we live, I'm afraid that millions of people have bought into a cheap gospel. Statistics show that the United States has the largest self-professing Christian population in the world with around 240 million people who identify themselves as Christians. And yet the examples of American Christians who are living out a costly discipleship that yields everything like what Jesus presents for us here and calls us to in Luke chapter 14 are hard to find. And I'm afraid that far too many of us have been looking for a deal on something that is simply costly. And many have ended up with something that will not deliver in the end. Because Jesus makes it very clear that whoever is not willing to pay the high cost of yielding all things into his control cannot be his disciple. So let's look at these words once again. If you're able, I ask that you would stand and we might read together. God's word in Luke 
chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, this is Jesus speaking, starting in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while, he, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Last week, as we took an initial glance at these verses, we saw that while Jesus offers to us free grace, grace that we could not earn on our own, he calls us to a discipleship that is not cheap. In fact, the discipleship that is characteristic of every true disciple of Jesus is very costly. That is, though Jesus offers to us unmerited favor, that grants those who accept his offer of eternal life the cost of following him in such a way to take hold of his free offer is high. And last week we looked in depth at at the high cost the disciple must be willing to pay as the one who follows Jesus must be willing, as we saw, to give up his or her family, his or her fanfare, his or her freedom, his or her finances. And Jesus teaches this lesson to Large crowds who, according to verse 25, as we just read, they were going along with him. They were going along with him, but apparently they were not coming after him in true discipleship so as to be saved because that's what ultimately Jesus calls them to do later in this passage. And we've seen that truly responding to Christ's offer to be saved is more than just a matter of going along with the crowd. It's more than a matter of just finding a church and blending in. There's a personal responsibility, a personal response. There's a personal dedication of who you are, availing your life to Christ that is an expected response of the child who would say, I am entrusting all that I am and all that I have to the Savior who offers to redeem me. But you see, these individuals are going along with Jesus, but they weren't following him. They weren't yielding their lives to his control. They were content to be entertained by him. They were content to be fed by him. They were content to be a part of the excitement. 
But as soon as the popular attitude of Jesus turned sour, they would soon check out and they would chime in with the rest of the multitudes who were gathering around yelling, Crucify! Crucify! And true discipleship is not that shallow. True discipleship is not going to give in so easily to the mood swings of the crowd and the population which surrounds That's why Jesus says to these individuals who are coming along with the crowd here in verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, it's a matter of going beyond going along with Jesus in fanfare to coming after Jesus in discipleship. Because, listen to me, Jesus doesn't need fans. Jesus doesn't desire fans. Jesus demands followers. And as we've seen, the high cost of discipleship here in Luke chapter 14, it's an important distinction for all of us to note. And so I just want to ask, are you going along after Jesus with the crowds like those who are just mentioned here going along with Jesus in verse 25? Or are you coming after Jesus in true, costly discipleship, following his model, walking in his footsteps, such that when he laid his life on on the line for the cause of the gospel, we who follow after him are prepared and ready to do the same. And I just want us to consider a few sort of diagnostic questions as we Think about this idea based on some parables that Jesus reveals for us here in this passage. And we're going to walk through these parables with these diagnostic questions to help us determine whether we are going along with Jesus or if we are coming after him. Are are we just a part of the crowd? Are we just a part of the association? Or are we truly yielding our lives in discipleship to him? Here's the first question to consider along those lines. Are you firm to the finish are you firm to the finish that's really the idea that's behind the parable that jesus presents for us here in verses 28 through 30 as he compels us to count the cost in verse 28 he says which one of you if he wants to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost to see if he has enough to complete it You see, there's this idea of completion, the ultimate objective being to complete something. The question is not whether or not this individual has made sure that he has enough to persevere in his finances, per se. It's that he has enough to persevere to the end of what he sets out to do, enough initiative, enough drive. Will he be firm to the finish, or will he fail to finish because he didn't appropriately consider whether or not he would be able to contribute to what was needed to finish the job. That's why Jesus goes on here in verse 29 to say, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to, there's the word finish, all who observe him will ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to, there's that word again, finish. A true Christian A true disciple of Jesus ought to be firm to the finish, is what Jesus is showing us here. Are the costs of following Jesus high? Yes, they are. But receiving the grace of God and giving your life to Christ is no matter of experimentation. 
You can't dip your toes into discipleship. You're either coming after Jesus in a fashion that says, I'm dead to who I once was, and now you are the Lord over my life. Or you're just going along with the crowd at best. So I just want to ask you, friend, are you firm to the finish? Have you counted the cost and decided that even if it costs you everything, you're going to follow after Jesus to the eternal life that he freely offers to you? Or are you just going to go along with Jesus or maybe go along with the crowd? If you're going to church because that's what your family has said you ought to do, or if you became a Christian because you were worried about the scorn you might face in your circles of influence if you were not one, or if you trusted Jesus in the past and now you're kind of along doing your own thing. There is a danger in all of those sorts of situations that what, what you've done is that you started to build a tower, but you haven't considered the costs of what it's going to take to finish the tower. And being firm to the finish is not a matter of being sure that we have enough to earn our way to the finish. It's a matter of knowing the challenges that lie ahead and being sure that we're ready to face them for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that another way. I'm not asking, do you have what it takes to follow Jesus? Because the truth be told, none of us has what it takes. The question is, are you willing to lose whatever it takes to follow Jesus? Because the one who begins to build for the kingdom and does not make it to completion is the one who encounters a cost that he or she was not prepared to pay. And so those who want to come after Jesus rather than just going along with him must be steadfastly resolved to let no other possession, no other pursuit, no other passion stand in the way of following Jesus to the end, to the finish. But the sad state of affairs for the one who is not firm to the finish is that unlike the parable where he is, where it's the, only the man who didn't count the cost and who, who wasn't able to finish and who is ridiculed. When someone professes to be a Christian and is not firm to the finish, it is not just themselves that is mocked as being hypocritical. It is also Christ who is mocked. The world says, well, there you have it, just another hypocrite who latched on to an empty hope. John Stott has written well the following words. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be comfortable. Their religion is a great, soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantries of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. And he says, no wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Let me just 
have a word with all of you here to ask, are you firm to the finish? Some of you used to faithfully read your Bible, but now your Bible is laying up on that shelf or on that table somewhere just collecting dust. Some of you used to talk with God often in prayer, but now you rarely bow your head outside of a morning worship service at church. Some of you made a former commitment to tithe, and now you've decided that what the Lord commands you to give, it should be available for other things. Some of you were once active church members, but now you've decided that it's time to check out of most of that. Some of you have started to build, but you are not firm to the finish. You're going along with Jesus rather than coming after him. And so I ask, are you firm to the finish? That's the first question to ask if you want to know whether or not you're going along with Jesus or if you're coming after him. Here's the second. Have you considered what you can conquer? The second parable Jesus gives to us, the second small parable in kind of sequential order here in verses 31 and 32, is yet again a parable that he speaks to these crowds talking about the cost of discipleship. And Jesus speaks about a king. In verse 31, he says, What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Here again, Jesus gives us an illustration of an individual that's considering what he's getting himself into. And the context here of this parable is still this call to costly discipleship. But this time the stakes are a little bit higher. It's not just a matter of, you know, I've failed in building my tower and everyone can see the failure that I didn't count the cost, I didn't have enough money, I didn't have enough resources to get things done. Now it's a matter of my own life is at stake. The life of the people that are under my reign is at stake. I, I mean, if, if an army is coming against me with 20,000 people and I only have 10,000 If I do not make preparations, then the devastation, the loss of life, could be great. So the stakes are much higher. And the odds do not look favorable with this army that's coming with twice as many soldiers. Now, if this king considers what he can conquer and realizes that he's not strong enough to encounter the one who's coming against him, then verse 32 says that while the other is still far away he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace you know that's a pretty wise thing to do for a king who would otherwise be defeated if he did not do so at least he has a chance of preserving his own life and the lives of those whom he rules over if he's able to work out some sort of peace agreement he may even maintain some level of authority in his kingdom If we look back to Luke chapter 12, we'll recognize that Jesus isn't just teaching us how to prepare for warfare. He's not just teaching us how to count the costs of battles. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus commands us not to fear men who can only kill us, but instead he tells us to fear the God who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast us into hell. We read in chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. 
He says that those who deny him before men will be denied before the angels of God in chapter 12, verse 9. He warns that our souls could be required of us at any moment in chapter 12, verse 20, and that he will return at an hour when we, when we do not expect in chapter 12, verse 40. You see, Christ is coming like a conquering king because that's what he is. He is a conquering king. And I ask you, do you think that your kingdom can stand against him? His word has made it clear that he is on his way and he will render justice against all wickedness. And here's the trouble with that. We've all missed the mark. We've all violated his created order. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We're all enemies of God by the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone according to his created order. And so he compels us to settle up before we appear before the judge in Luke chapter 12, verse 58. And he compels us to ask for terms of peace here in Luke chapter 14, verse 32. But none of that matters if we haven't taken the opportunity to consider what we can conquer. Because if you don't realize that you've sinned against an infinitely holy and just God who cannot leave the guilty unpunished, then you may never ask for terms of peace from Him. If you haven't considered what you can conquer, then you may have some sort of opinion in your mind that there's still a chance that you'll come through by your own good deeds, by your own work, by your own power. And if that's your mindset, then please hear my earnest plea. You can't do this on your own. You can't do this by your own power. There's not enough righteousness in you to bridge the gap of sin between you and God. Unless one who has lived the righteous life that you could not live stands in your place, then you are headed for a bitter and a lasting defeat. But friends, there's good news in all of this. Because as we read in John chapter 3, verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, John goes on to say. It's the words of Christ revealed through John, as a matter of fact. So hear the good news, my friends. The coming conqueror offers to you peace while he is still far off. Before his coming to exact judgment, before his coming conquest, now he offers to you an arrangement of peace. It's a peace that he himself has stood in your place to provide. He has borne the wrath that you deserve so that you can find peace. And he offers this grace to you free. He had to because there was nothing in you that could earn it. So I plead with you now. Before he comes in judgment, will you consider what you can conquer? Will you ask for terms of peace? Will you yield your life to Christ? His terms are nothing less than complete and total surrender. But it's such a sweet surrender. It's a surrender to the one who made you, 
and knows what's best for you. It's a surrender to the one who will keep you and will sustain you. Surrender your life to Jesus. Invest the high cost of discipleship by laying your own kingdom in the dust and yielding to the King of kings and Lord of lords. He will rule you well. And He will grant you the riches of His kingdom. Won't you come to Jesus today? If you haven't already. Have you considered what you can conquer? That's the second question to ask. If you want to know whether you're going along with Jesus or coming after Him, here's the third. Have you squandered your saltiness? Have you squandered your saltiness? Jesus turns our attention to salt in verse 34. That's where He says, salt is good. And I just want to pause here for a moment to tell my health-conscious friend, Keith Richardson, that salt is good, all right? It's biblical, Keith. So, Tammy, you tell him, no more oppression under this matter, okay? From the, the words of Jesus, of course, Keith could turn around here in just a few moments as we gather around the table and say that bread is good as I partake of my gluten-free option. But still, I digress. Jesus said salt is good, but even if, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile, and it is thrown out. Now, you might be asking, well, how can salt lose its season? How can salt lose its saltiness? Well, you should know that the salt that the people in Jesus' day used was, was pulled from the marshes that were southwest of the Dead Sea. And while we use sea salt that comes from the ocean and contains about 85% sodium chloride. The salt from the Dead Sea is only about 15% sodium chloride. And so this is an impure sort of salt. And this sort of salt can deteriorate if, for example, rain were to get into it. And so that one salty part of that salt would be washed away if rain got into it. And it would become tasteless and it would become useless. If an individual poured what was left of that salt into a field, he would kill his crops. Likewise, if he put it into the manure pile, which was then used for fertilizer on that same field, then it would have the same result. The only benefit of tasteless salt was that it could be put on the roads. And as it was put on the roads, it would absorb moisture and it would pack down such that things could not grow through it. That's why Jesus said in something similar, a parallel sort of passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, that salt which has become tasteless is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now Jesus calls for his followers to be salt in the world. In fact, in Matthew 5, 13, he says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But he warns there, as he does here in Luke chapter 14, that those who follow him must be careful not to lose the saltiness that has been placed within them, lest they become useless. Jesus said if we lose our saltiness, if we, if we no longer season the world that is around us, then we have become useless. And I just, I just wonder, do you ever think about why people are walking away from the church in droves in our day and age? 
You know why it appears to be open season on Christians and the God whose word we cherish today? Do you know why we're mocked in so many news outlets and universities and laughed at in society? Do do you know why the perception of sodomy has been transformed from one of sin to one of virtue? Do you know why love is being outweighed by lust? Do you know why so many homes are broken with deadbeat dads? Do you know why celebrities who entertain the masses receive more esteem than the creator who made them? It's because the salt has lost its saltiness. We are not willing to enrich a flavorless world, coming after Jesus at any cost, testifying of the life that he offers and the cost that he demands. We are salt that has lost its saltiness and the world tramples on us. Friends, we need to stop blaming the politicians. And we need to stop blaming the drug dealers. And we need to stop blaming the pornographers and the news agencies and the celebrities. The problem in our broken world doesn't lay with them. The problem lies with the church. Because we are failing to be salty saints. We are, by and large, failing to be true disciples of Jesus who would come after him and follow his example. And oh to God that we would be made salty again by truly coming after Him in discipleship. Discipleship that gives everything. Discipleship that yields all of who we are to who He is. Discipleship that looks to His Word. Discipleship that bows in prayer and says, Here I am, Lord, today, ready for Your use. Guide me where You need me. But I ask you, O Christian, Have you squandered your saltiness? When you go to work or out into the community tomorrow, will there be a distinct flavor about you that enriches the world around you like salt enriches a fresh batch of pretzels? What is there about you that is so different that your friends and family members or the person you work next to can see as different? It has well been said that with most of us, it's the bland leading the bland. But salty saints will recreate an enduring thirst for the Savior. Just a little example of that. i got a video kind of queued up for you guys. Most of us have heard this song. We actually sang it as our invitation last week. We're going to sing it at the end of the service here today. But do you know the story behind the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus? It's a pretty interesting story. So turn your attention to the screen now. You're going to see what I'm talking about. The 1904 revival swept across Wales. God made himself known in a very special and personal way. After the revival, a Welshman ventured halfway across the world to India and tracked up the mountains towards a remote village in the east. He was told to go back. The tribe in that village are famously violent. But the Welshman ignored the warnings because even these savage headhunters should have the opportunity to hear about the mercy of God. One tribesman and his family heard the gospel and received Jesus as their savior. The good news was too good to keep to themselves and they shared the gospel with others in the tribe. The chief was very angry, and he had the tribesman and his family dragged before the 
this matter of God, no. I have decided to follow Jesus. I am not turning back. The chief was furious and killed the tribesman's children. Stop following Jesus, the chief insisted. The tribesman replied, Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. The chief showed no mercy. We killed the tribesman's wife. Now he will stop following this Jesus, the chief said. The tribesman looked the chief in the eyes and replied, The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. The chief could not believe his ears and he killed the tribesman. Jesus said, if a grain of wheat dies, it bears much fruit. And that day, many of the villagers who witnessed the persecution of that tribesman and his family also decided to follow Jesus. Even the chief himself became a follower of Jesus Christ. The tribesman's last words became the song of the village, and today, it is sung all around the world. I have decided to follow Jesus. You see the difference that can be made when those who are called to be salty can live in a salty sort of manner. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, can you imagine from a tribe nearby how foolish it would have seemed for this man to allow his kids, to allow his wife, to allow himself to be killed because he was a follower of Jesus. And yet because of his faithfulness, how many came to know eternal life? You see, as Jesus said back in Luke chapter 12, don't be afraid of man who can only take your life because what those men could not take away was the eternal hope that God offers to his own. And friends, if we have truly decided to follow Jesus, then let us be the salt of the earth. Let us be that which enriches. Let us be that which brings others to know that there's something different, something worthwhile, something worth giving all that you are and all that you have to. Because this is our call in discipleship. And have you squandered your saltiness? That's the third question. If you want to know whether you're going along with Jesus or coming after him, here's the final one. Do you have ears to hear? Jesus calls all of us to action with this final statement in his message to those large crowds who were going with him in verse 35. That's where he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It would be a shame to come into the hearing of such a strong calling from Jesus to life-altering and life-producing discipleship and not to be changed by it. And so I ask, do you have ears to hear? Are you willing to receive what the Lord commands of us today? If you are lost and, and the debt of your sin is lingering over you, will you entrust your life to Jesus today? If you've been saved but you've gotten off track and you're veering away from the path that he's called you to, will you return to him today? 
Listen, if you think the cost of discipleship is high for us as mortal men and women, think of what it costs the immortal God. The table that now stands before us is a reminder of the high cost of the broken body and the blood which was shed by our dear Savior. God gave his only son and watched him in anguish on the cross so that you might have life. He paid the ultimate cost for us so that we might have life. Jesus doesn't just call us to go before him. He doesn't call us to bear the trials in his place so that he can stand high and dry and handsome No, Jesus calls for us to come after him because he's already paid the greatest cost, a greater cost than we ever could. And so we gather around the table and we remember the sacrifice of one who has truly lived out the highest of all costs. Would you pray with me now? Fathers, we gather around this table. I just pray you'd help each one of us, Lord, to sense the reality of the love that you have for us and that you sent your own son to die for us. That that we're not just here to have a snack of bread and juice. We're here to, to remember a body of an infinite God who took on flesh so that he might be broken for us that his blood might be shed for us. And so as we gather in these moments around the table, Lord, help us to remember that while the cost of discipleship is great, it is a cost that Christ is so worthy of. So draw us to yourself, Lord, as we gather around, as we remember in these moments now.